Hi, I'm to... Sid Patel. I'm at the Master Wines Office and the CEO of Beverage Trade Network, and this is for Inside the Drinks Business. Super excited. Thanks for having me, Adrian and Sarah. You know, here, uh, Adrian's Welcome. ex- Thank you. Adrian's executive uh, director of Master of Wine and Sarah leads the study programs and development for, you know, the Master of Wine program. So uh, pleasure. We're going to talk about really, you know, what it is like running Master of Wine office and, you know, behind the scenes, what value you c- you're going to gain as a student if you apply for Master of Wine and more importantly, how all this, you know, come together, uh, especially from this office here. Adrian, over to you. Why don't you give a little uh, rundown about you know your journey, your uh, you know more about your role and what you do here? Thanks. Uh, okay, thanks. Ed. Well, first of all, pleasure to have you here and for us to be able to give you a little bit of insight as to what's happening at the institute. Uh, in terms of my own background, I am probably a little bit unique in the sense that I am a master of wine. Uh, I am the executive director and have been for the last two and a half years. Uh, and prior to that, I was actually the chairman of the institute and a member of the uh, institute's board, which we called council. I've been there for about eight, eight years. Prior to uh, joining the Institute, I was actually the chief executive of a uh, winery out in New Zealand. So okay. I was running that for about two and a half years, a winery called Yeelands. And is that from New Zealand? Uh, yeah, based in New Zealand, based in Marlborough, uh, down in the Tree Valley. So I was doing that for two and a half years. And uh, as a consequence of a, a variety of uh, circumstances, uh, I started to uh, get involved in running the day-to-day operations from uh, early 2020 and uh, I've remained in situ since then as travel to New Zealand is probably not the most easy thing to do over the last two years so uh, yeah. so it's been a, it's been a fascinating time to be involved working with what's a really fantastic team uh, as we've had to evolve and respond to the very many challenges that COVID has posted. Uh, Not just for the Institute, but for everybody in their working lives and in their personal lives. It's been a really challenging time, but uh, I like to think that we've, we've demonstrated that the Institute is actually a really dynamic organisation mm-hmm. and in spite of those challenges we've remained incredibly active over this period I think uh, that puts us in a really really strong position as we look towards the future so it's been a fascinating couple of years I've certainly enjoyed every minute of it and uh, but you know, one of the big fundamental activities we're engaged in is uh, the education programme and that's why we have Sarah Harrison here who's our head of uh, um, a program study and development, or a version of those words, and <laughs> uh, and Sarah Sarah's also been with us for a couple of years, and she's been really at the helm in terms of helping drive the changes that we've had to put in place nice. to be able to respond. Uh, uh, keep our students engaged and keep the institute very very active over this period. Super, Sarah. How about you? You know, uh, what what brought you in the wine business? So I am a bit different because I'm not, I don't have a background in wine. So I used to do a really similar program for a professional body, uh, similar job, sorry, for a professional body that was involved in teaching teachers in mm-hmm. the UK. Mm-hmm. So I ran the exams, I ran the study program, and then I saw this job, which was basically the same job title, really similar responsibilities, but in the wine trade. And I thought, that's the most exciting job I've ever seen. So immediately applied and joined. So nice. I've kind of just begun my journey in the wine trade, I suppose. So I've been working here for two years, but it's been um, challenging, I would say, over the last two years because things have been so different and we've had to really adapt. So I think, uh, you know, Adrian, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about breaking down your role. You know, uh, we'd yes. love to know what does your day look like? You know, what, what do you do in the morning? What, what, <laughs> like, let's say, you know, uh, Sarah is in your team, but what, what other team uh, dynamics are there? Who reports to you or who do you report to? Uh, 
We, we have a small team. We're yep. about 13 people. We have a couple of people based overseas, one in Australia, one in the US to mm. cover our activities there. Uh, and then the rest are all office based here in London, uh, which is a purpose built office, which was established in 2016. Um, my day is, uh, well, no two days are ever the same. We, we, it's a really fascinating role in the sense that we have um, a key part of our activity is education, which Sarah can explain in a little bit more detail. But we are fundamentally a membership organisation. So we have uh, 420 Masters of Wine mm -hmm. around the world in 30 different countries mm -hmm. with all sorts of demands and challenges. So we're engaging with them on a regular basis. We have a whole committee structure, which is a, a process whereby MWs are able to express their opinions and influence. Um, so so let, let's uh, pause there so I understand. Yeah. What is the structure? So there, are, there is a committee structure? So we would have the overarching uh, decision-making body is council. So that would be our board. Okay, so that's the chairman which you were before. And that's the, so that's headed by a chair who's currently Neil Hadley, who's and based in Australia. how many are allowed? How many are there in, as a chairman? Uh, it's, uh, the, the chair is a two-year role. So I was a chair for two years. Neil was a vice chair. When I stepped down, he then assumed the role. And he's currently coming towards the end of his two-year period. Okay. And he will re be replaced in September by a lady called Cathy Fonsale, yeah. who is an MW based in South Africa. Down so the so chairs are like more advisors, how you would have in the, let's say, a, a business firm, right? Like more of a, uh, you know, vote, voting and yes, so Yes, without on. a doubt. So, that, so the chair then has a board, which we call council, which is okay. a group of, I think we're 14 people. It is a number that varies All a little right. bit. Uh, and people are voted onto council by the members. Got it. Uh, by the MWs. By MWs. All right. So every year, year we have uh, an annual general meeting. Got it. Where the chair will give feedback and more specifically I will talk about the detail of the activities. And you are what we call like a CEO? Absolutely. Running the Absolutely. Okay. So we run, it's a, it's a little business. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it's it's quite interesting in that it's it's got a it's, and this it's, is a profit and loss sort of business, right? You have an income and you have to manage your expenses. Absolutely, absolutely. We're we're, we're a non-for-profit organisation. Sure. We tend to run our budget on a break-even basis, and uh, within that, uh, we uh, get revenue from students who participate in the program. Got it. We get revenue from our members who got pay it. a subscription every every year, and we also get some revenue from supporters who are. Um, wine companies who are happy to be associated and share a lot of the values and the ethos that the Institute of Masters of Wine stands for. Okay, so this is the uh, MW office. Uh, it's purpose-built. Everybody's looking very, very worried now. So uh, Luke, Luke is running, uh, who runs the office. Belinda's just run out of shot. She's looking after all of our events. We have marketing and comms here. The education team are based here. We have finance. Uh, just behind you, and then here's my little office just in the corner. Uh, I don't tend to spend too much time in the office. I'm much more interested in being around in the trade and meeting our MWs and seeing everything that's going on. But this is a purpose-built office, and, and for, for me it serves us very, very well. Uh, this is our annual review, so every year we do a full review, which is uh, sent out to our supporters and sent out to all of our MWs, and is the basis of the annual general meeting where we will give a, a detailed update to all of the members of the activities we've undertaken in every aspect 
of the Institute's life, whether that's through education, whether it's through our committees, whether that could be in sustainability or diversity, which we have a strong commitment towards, uh, whether it's the finances, we, we're, we're, it's, 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 a, it's a proper business, you know, and we're, we're, we're very open and transparent and we share everything with our members. Uh, and we give them regular updates as to the activity. Sarah, I think a clear value prop would be, you know, for a candidate who would want to join the program would be the first question is, you know, what is Master of Wine? You know, who is Master of Wine? In fact, I don't even know what or who, right? So how would you define Master of Wine? How would I define it? I suppose the key thing is the, well, there are two key aspects of that, I would say. One is that they've passed the Master of Wine exam, mm -hmm. which is in three parts. So you've got the practical exam, the theory exam, and then a research paper. And that's pretty difficult to do, and it's a really big undertaking. So the practical exam, you have three practical papers. They're all 12 wine flights, which are completely blind, and they've got two hours and 15 minutes to answer a lot of questions about those wines. So not just about identification of what the wine is, but how good quality is it or not, and where might it be sold. Then there's five theory papers. Those are about three hours each, um, give or take. Uh, where they'll have to write two or three essays in that time on different topics. So it might be the business of wine, it might mm -hmm. be viticulture, it might be contemporary issues. Once they've got through all of that, they'll then write a research paper, usually eight to 10,000 words, an original piece of research. So a master of wine is someone who's passed all of that. Mm -hmm. But really crucially, it's also someone that signed the code of conduct. So that's something which is, basically it dictates how a master of wine will go about their business and the ways that they'll behave. And so once all of that has happened, they become a Master of Wine, they join the IMW as a member, and uh, they can use MW after their name. And what is the code of conduct? Uh, you know, what are the values which they have to uh, carry, as you say? So things like commercial uh, probity, so making sure that you're undertaking your business in a way that is fair and just and doesn't give, um, what's the phrase that it uses, that doesn't kind of, doesn't make the wine trade look bad. It's kind of right and proper. Um, mm -hmm. We also have lots of things in there about diversity at the moment as well. So making sure that we treat people fairly and um, that we are kind and honest and all of those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Nice. So, uh, I mean, uh, for the program, you said, you know, there are three parts. Mm -hmm. Are each, like, is there a prerequisite and then you move to the other part? You have to pass the, I think, practical first and then theory. And then again, the research is the last part, right? The research is the last part. Um, so you do have quite a few steps to get onto the program and then to get to the point of even submitting the research paper. So the first thing you've got to do is get through the admission stage. So you'll have to pass an eligibility check to okay. show that you're, um, the, you've got all the right things in place before you even start. So that's that you've got the right qualifications, that you've been in the wine trade for at least three years and that you are an active professional member of the wine trade. You then, once you've passed that check, part of the admissions process is to write an application form. So that talks about your motivations, why you want to become a master of sure. wine. It asks you to talk about, do you have the time? Because it's, you know, it's a big undertaking. Um, how are you planning to make sure you get everything done? And then you also do an entrance exam. So that's one... Uh, a physical entrance exam? So it's online, actually, okay. so that it's kind of a bit more accessible to people around the world. But uh, tasting and theory. So you'll do a dry, t well, a tasting with some wines that are seen, so you know what they are, but you'll okay. write a tasting note and then a, a theory essay as well. All of that is looked at holistically. If you get onto the program, you're then in stage one. That's essentially a foundation stage. So at that point, you're not looking to 
actually sit the exam that I told you about, the yep. practical and theory one. You're learning about what the MW exam is, how you might approach the questions. It. It's quite a big step from diploma. The way that you answer questions is quite different. And so mm -hmm. we're really trying to help people to understand how they do it. And for, that point. for the qualification part, you know, I think there, are, there is a myth or maybe a fact, like they, they say that you have to pass WSET first and then, you know, this and that. So what are the exact sort of, you know, who all can apply? So people who can apply need to meet the eligibility criteria. So those three are, the first one you mentioned is the diploma. So and it's is that not WSET? only okay. WSET diploma, it's that you have to have the WSET diploma or equivalent. So there are other equivalent organizations, okay. other equivalent qualifications. It might be a uh, BA in enology, it might be a oh, MSc in viticulture, you know, there's other things that we would count as equivalent and we've got a sort of database of things that we Like a up. microbiology course and all, even the university courses, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Winemaking and, course. And, and I would say the reason we're putting this in place is not to uh, be exclusive or elitist. We want everybody who is engaged in the program to genuinely run the risk of succeeding. And our experiences is that people, historically, if they came in without that um, firm trade background and understanding or with a certain level of base knowledge, they just didn't succeed. And, and kind of morally, I feel that's, yeah. a, that's a little bit of a problem. So the reason we put these eligibility criteria in is just to try and identify those uh, high-performing individuals who we genuinely believe. And I'm, yeah, yeah. when Sarah says it's a holistic study, it's an incredible amount of work that is undertaken by yeah. a, a small group of really committed MWs who are trying to find those people. We think no, they, we think they've got what it takes to succeed. Also, even let's say you got this hundred applicants, and then uh, after that, how would you evaluate who gets in the program? What happens then? So we'll look at everything that they've submitted um, okay. as part of their application. So we and that's and we meaning uh, like you and this office or no, a lot of MWs a committee of MWs who okay. are called the admissions committee. So they oversee the process, and then we also get some other MWs involved to mark the entrance exams. So we get lots of different people to look at each uh, application, and they'll mark the entrance exams, or they might read all of the. Um, personal statements and things and give some feedback and then all of that is collated so for each individual student we will be looking at all of their previous work history where they've come right. from how long they've been in the trade their entrance exam marks um, their reference we get an MW reference as well or mm -hmm. somebody else senior in the wine trade we'll see how good that reference was we'll look at the personal statement we look across all of that and then try and make a balanced judgment about whether or not I think uh, I think you really are like gaging their discipline right like will they really be Focused sure. and disciplined enough. Uh, is that is that because uh, are are there any uh, criteria or you have to make sure that this is a pass rate? Uh, otherwise, you just think it's becoming tougher. Or how do you balance the passing rate versus you know what I mean? Like versus new applicants. I, I don't even know what is your passing rate. Let's say 100. for new applicants coming into the yeah. program. Um, it depends year on year, to be honest. Okay. Um, so we don't set um, targets where we would say. 50% of people have to get onto the program, no, no, so it's no. the top 50. That's not how we do it. We oh, try right. and um, make a decision based on, do we really think these people are going to, um, are actually going to be successful when they join the program? Okay. So for example, last year we instituted something new where we did a check that meant that people who weren't eligible for the program got, um, they weren't even able to apply. So we kind of got rid of them at the first stage. So that meant last year our acceptance rates was a bit higher than normal. So. Mm. Sort of depends on the candidates as well, right? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Exactly. Like this year, you got a great 
yeah. you know, yeah, people yeah. are playing. So, for example, so, exactly, and that's that's kind of true across the board. Really, it's more about how many people meet the grade and yeah. how many people get to the level that we would say is successful, rather than us setting quotas. Yeah, we have that. no quotas, and yeah. there's no. We need so so such a certain percentage to pass. It, it, this is absolute in terms of so this is the standard. If people are good enough to get on the program, we give them the opportunity to do so. If they're good enough to pass the stage two exam, which Sarah will talk about now, yeah. they're, good, they're, they're good enough. There, there is no uh, directive from above and certainly no challenge of us as an organisation to say we've got to get 30 people over the line this year. So in fact, how, if there was, how, we would kick against that. How much time does it take? Like, What is the hours you have to put in or years or months? You know, uh, if you had to, like, if I had to ask you, you know, uh, I want to start, I want to do it. How much is it? How much time will it take? You know, do you mind sharing that? It's a pretty difficult question to answer just because it depends a bit on your background, but I'll okay. do my best. So, absolutely. So, it's a self-study, is that why? Self-study, yeah, exactly. So, some people might come in with a huge amount of tasting knowledge. Some people might have less. So, you might have to spend more time or less time, if you see what I mean. So, it depends a little bit. But... In terms of the number of years, the absolute minimum is three years. So that will take you through stage one, assuming you pass that first time. So I have to finish two. in three years, basically. That's the three, three years maximum time. That, no, that would be the That's minimum. the minimum time. Okay. So the maximum would be up to about 10 years. Wow. Um, okay. Depending on which stage you pass at, at which point, Got basically. It. So, you know, we're governed by, you have a certain amount of attempts at the stage two exam, Got a certain it. amount of attempts at the stage one exam. So some people will come in, pass them all, and just so get it stage one in year someday. one, stage two in year two, so even research paper in stage three. Minimum is three years. Wow. Yeah. So it's and, a, and that you're considering like what ten hours a week sort of commitment on an average? I think it is. It's really different, but I wouldn't say that's unfair. Yeah. So it wow. might be more. Yeah. It's, it's a big intense. undertaking. It's, it's really pretty intense. intense. Yes. Yeah. So if I had to really, you know, if, if there was a KPI, like key performance indicators, yeah. let's say, right? Like as, when you started and if we evaluate uh, how you performed, for example, yeah, for you sure. know, excuse my business terminology. No, no, here. fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. So uh, what would be the metrics, like number of new MWs you got, the profitability factor? Okay, no, really, I mean, that's a really great question. Again, because I come from a business background, I'm very comfortable with that. Look, we, we work on a break-even basis, so we have a budget that we work to, okay. uh, and it's our challenge to try and balance that whilst delivering all of our activities. So right. whether that's events for MWs, activities for students, education, uh, we have a webinar program, we would typically organise trips, uh, both for students and for MWs, where it's an opportunity to engage with the trade all around the world. There's a whole host of different activities that we would be involved with. Uh, and fundamentally, I report that back to council. Um, typically, we used to have a council meeting every three months. Okay. Uh, we're now working on a two-month basis, but during the COVID period, when things were evolving on a, well, on a daily basis, yeah, yeah. We had meetings every month, whereby and, and that, we were, there would be like different channels, right? Like this is the this is the tasting revenue. This would be like a, oh, absolutely. Okay. We were looking at all of our activities. We we will be reporting on where our challenges are, how it impacts upon the budget, what activities we're taking to either shore budget shortfalls or to, it's it's just typical business management. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, we're very comfortable doing that. There, there's we 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 work on a you know, there's a no. Surprise and, and then I guess here. in your team you would have okay you know uh, here's the education captain here's the T 
testing, you know, absolutely, events. Absolutely. Uh, you know, so we would have, we have a head of education, we have a head of uh, marketing and communications, and we have a head of finance. And, and then there's a big thing of reputation, which is sort of you have to maintain, right? That whole integrity. Yeah. Uh, what sort of things, uh, how, do you, how do you measure that? It's so hard to you know, uh, measure reputation. It's really interesting. We spend a lot of time working with trademark lawyers to uphold okay. our trademarks all around the world. And in fact, mm. one of the interesting uh, measurements, uh, if you like, is we've never had so many trademark challenges as we have had over the last two years. Wow, okay. uh, and I think that reflects the fact that we've remained incredibly active during this COVID period. And what you say is quite right. I think we enjoy uh, uh, an incredible reputation, uh, which has been developed over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. you know, the first exam was held in 1953. Mm -hmm. The institute was set up in 1955. So we're nearly 70 years uh, as an institute. And the activities that we've engaged with, the quality of people who have graduated and become masters of wine, all of this builds towards establishing this, I think, enviable reputation. And I'm, I'm in an interesting situation of being both an MW, I graduated in 93. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a lot easier in those days, I think, than it is now. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. but, uh, but I, I look at it from an MW perspective, but now I'm looking at it from an institute perspective in terms of what can we do? What are the activities that we can engage with, both to raise the profile of the institute raise the profile of the individual members because more than anything we're a function of our True. of our members so True. if they're engaged in positive activities we like to make people aware of that and to make sure that any activity that we do engage is consistent with our values if it's of a high enough standard uh, and we challenge ourselves constantly to make sure that we perform uh, at, a, at a level that we think is appropriate for an MW working in a, an increasingly complex and complicated global wine trade. So mm -hmm. we're a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating challenge, mm -hmm. and you're absolutely right. What are the matrices to measure? Well, I'm not sure we've really defined what those are, but we know there's always work to be done to um, both protect our reputation mm -hmm. and to enhance our reputation. So I, I, I recently had a chat with uh, Susan, you know, yep. on the, on the mm -hmm. and I do ask this question, uh, uh, to you know, a lot of MWs on how uh, any moments or any memories on how this changed, you know, before and after. So maybe this this can be your you can be an example of here, you know, like before and before after. MW. Uh, how was how you know where do you think? Uh, let's say if I you know I'm just again putting in the context with uh, let's say I'm a Harvard MBA graduate versus sure. a normal yeah. you know how you started being perceived and how it actually helped you in business as well. Well, I uh, when I became an MW, uh, I was working in a large corporate, which is now Diageo. I'd been there for the best part of 15 years. Uh, and becoming an MW, I left Diageo to become the managing director of a publicly quoted wine business in South Africa, um, where I was using my MW qualifications mm -hmm. just to help try and you know, build this business at a time well, for the South African wine industry, it was a fascinating time to be there and to be uh, heavily involved in uh, activities. Uh, um, like in like South what Africa. skills in particular 
got enhanced, you know, like you really oh, I think, I think, took an approach which was different. Uh, yeah, it's very much. I think, look, there is a, in order to pass the program, you need a thorough understanding of every single aspect of the wine business. So okay. you're talking about every aspect of viticulture. Okay. You're talking about every aspect of winemaking, bottling, all the commercial aspects, the financial right. aspects. And also I think there is this sort of historical context and the cultural importance of wine. And I think all of those skills are really, really relevant if you're going to go into a general manage management role, which is where, where I went. And, and without doubt, if you're talking to uh, journalists, if you're talking to buyers, yeah, yeah. Uh, having a, an, an MW uh, attached to your name gives you a, a certain degree of credibility. Yeah. Uh, it's not always a door opener, but, but, but they know you're serious about wine. I think that's, you, we talked earlier on about the, the reputation. Got well, it. anybody who's got through the program, they've got to be pretty committed. They've got to be pretty smart. And they will need to know the ins and outs of the wine business, not just identifying a Grand Cru Burgundy at 50 paces. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I'm more interested in, as we talked earlier on, you know, return on investment. You know, employment of capital, uh, staff issues, uh, mm. commercial legislation, depending on where you're selling wine in the world. You need to understand all of that in order to be able to run a wine business. You need to understand all of that to become mm -hmm. a master of wine. So I think the, uh, the disciplines and the level of knowledge you need will enhance your career, whatever career path that you choose to take mm -hmm. uh, as a newly qualified MW. And I think one of the wonderful things about our membership is it's a really broad church, mm -hmm. uh, both in terms of age range. Mm -hmm. We have people on the one hand who want to be spoken to with handwritten notes to people who will only communicate via Instagram. We have people yeah. who are <laughs> planting, you know, who are making wine, writing books, yeah, uh, yeah. education. So coming back, uh, I think maybe uh, Sarah, I can, you can help answer here as well and Adrian, you can jump in. But if I had to do, I had to assess my ROI for the program, mm -hmm. You know, uh, number one is how much is it? You know, if it's, let's say, 10,000 pounds or 15,000, I don't even know, but let's say if there is a number to it and my time value, uh, how does it uh, give me return on investment? Like, have you seen some really black and white case studies that as soon as you graduate, 20%, 30% incomes, you know, uh, you can start earning more? I mean, I think it's really different. As Adrian talked about before, we have so many different types of MW who do okay. so many different things. So. Some people might become an MW and then suddenly think, right, I'm going to change my career and go freelance. I was yeah. talking to somebody in Canada, actually, who did that exact thing and felt that being having the MW gave her that, that freedom, freedom. Yeah. Um, particularly because she was the first MW in a certain region in Canada. So she felt like it completely changed her career. Other people, that's not necessarily what they're looking for. Yeah. So mm -hmm. some people will become an MW and then stay in the job that they had before because that's the job they love. What they're actually looking for from the MW is either that sense of status or actually just they want to become learning. better. They just want to become better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. by the time you finished it, it's the same as a lot of people who do PhDs or other things. It's about the love of the subject more than it is about mm. suddenly earning loads more money. So I think the option is there, I imagine, if people want For to sure. use that profile and they want to build it, but not everybody does. People's motivation, yeah, people's motivations are very, very different. Yeah. But, but what happens is when you become an MW, you become a part of an incredible network. Mm. Uh, you know, sure. we're, we're now 420 MWs worldwide, and I sometimes think we underplay that, but it is an incredibly strong network of yeah. people who are, I think, very influential 
within their sphere of activities within sure. the wine trade. And, and actually, they're incredibly collegiate. We've just come back from yeah. North America. We're for two weeks, we're running our first residential seminars in over yeah. two years. And the sense of camaraderie that exists amongst that group. And I think we can be a genuine force for good because yeah. we have people who are... I think you know, people do look up uh, for sure. Like I, you know, I, I'm a big fan, as I said, of Tim and I and, you know, like Peter. Uh, who runs the Napa Academy. Yeah, Peter Mox. Like he's guy. like the rock star, right? Top guy, so, yeah, top guy. Uh, people admire <laughs> him, uh, so for sure. Little uh, guy. <laughs> you know, uh, I think let's go back on a couple of business questions. Uh, if, if maybe you can wear your ex experience hat. Yes. If you were uh, asked a business challenge of, you know, this is my 12.99 wine, I want to make it to a 14.99 wine, yeah. and go a little premiumization, you know. Yeah, sure. Uh, what approach, what are the right questions you would think of? I, you've got to look inherently whether or not you've got the ability to deliver a wine which is of the quality to deliver against that price point would be my start. But let's point. assume it's it's definitely got that quality, yeah, sure. you know, where you can write the $2 more, yeah. you know, uh, price. Yeah. Uh, how would you approach this? What what, are, what does the rollout of this kind of thing look like? You know, how would you buy distributors on board? How would you buy retailers? What are, you know, you, maybe you have had this kind of experience, or if yeah, you had very, any other very business. Very much so. I mean, I, look, we've, I was involved in merging three different wine businesses together, and within that we had wines at lots of different price points. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of just putting the price up, uh, I, I, we're in a market which is chronically oversupplied, so mm -hmm. uh, customers they're not daft, you know, if they've, been, if they've been enjoying something at £12 and it's suddenly gone up to 15 they're going to be asking the question why. So I think you need to understand your route to market, first okay. and foremost. You've got to look at the returns that you're going to get, depending on what that route to market is. You've got to make sure that from a quality perspective that you have something which really delivers. And I think you've got to be looking at a true point of difference. Mm. You know, I always would say to, uh, to my sales teams when I spoke to them, I said, look, you know, the buyers you're talking to, the minute you walk out the door, the next guy from Italy is in, and then two hours later, it's somebody from Argentina, and they've all got the same story. Yeah. You've got to be very, very clear about what it is about the wine that you're offering that makes it stand out from the pack, and why it's going to succeed. Why is a buyer going to take a punt on you? Um, as we move more towards direct-to-consumer, well, you know, what is the communication? What is it that's going to get people to, to come back and buy your wine again? And mm. you, you have to give people a really good reason for that. Cool. So it's, uh, yeah, so it, it's, you know, it's proper FMCG. The idea of talking about, well, it's SO4 root stock. Well, sure. the buyer's fallen asleep and a customer hasn't got a clue what you're talking about. Sure. Uh, you've got to try and relate to uh, the business yeah. and you've got to relate to your consumer and you've got to get a, a very clear message out there and you've got to do it quickly yeah, in, a, yeah. in a marketplace which is actually incredibly competitive and fragmented from a wine perspective mm -hmm. but I would always say is you're not just competing against the wine industry you're competing against spirits as we spoke earlier spirits is booming mm. so why is it people are going to drink this glass of wine and not have a gin and tonic or a cocktail mm. uh, you've got to think of you know you're competing for share of throat against coca-cola or against coffee uh, True. against cannabis which is coming into yeah. that sort of uh, so mm -hmm. in, into that space so we have to be really cognizant of uh, what makes wine unique yeah and what is going to make people feel good about themselves, about drinking a glass of wine above any other beverage. And therefore, whether you're looking at something at £15, at £5, or at £50, you need to have a really, really clear understanding of what it is that you're offering, mm. which is going to 
make a consumer happy about drinking your product. Yeah. And, and, and that's a fantastic challenge. And I, I'm, personally, I think wine is unique and I think it has a lot of really positive attributes, which is why you know, the wine market is a, is a, is a large global market. Yeah. But we should be under no illusions that it's really challenging, it's incredibly yeah. fragmented, it's pretty confusing for a lot of consumers. And right now, it's pretty static. Yeah, yeah. Um, so where, where, where are you seeing growth in terms of market size growth and also applicant growth, right? Uh, I think, I believe Asia would be one country, uh, a region where you may be, I, I don't know, I may be wrong, but uh, America for sure, I think I'm seeing growth as well. Uh, the US would be our biggest market for students right now. Okay. And I think that's fascinating to see because it reflects the true global nature. Yeah of the wine trade. You know, when we started as an institute in 1955... So you're seeing more applications from... Oh, without a doubt, yeah. And we currently have more students in North America than anywhere else in the world. Great. And I think that reflects where the global wine trade sits right now. I say, if you look at the analogy with 1955, it was arguable, but the UK was probably the centre of the global wine trade. But the reality is, it's still a big market, yeah. but it is no longer the centre. And I think the way the institute has become uh, more international. Yeah. So about 50% of our MWs are outside of the UK right now. And do you focus uh, mainly on English-speaking countries? Because I, I've not found much in France or Germany or Spain. Uh, it's like very less we, numbers, we, right? No, we run programs in all of those different markets. In fact, we, we for people who uh, UK uh, English is not their primary language, they have the opportunity to answer in their mother tongue, and we translate that. Yeah, for the theory exam. For theory. The, the course is delivered in English, though, so um, people would need to know how Yeah, exactly, really and they English. do their practical in, in English. Mm. So. Uh, what has changed? So coming back on the COVID part, you know, uh, for the course, and maybe this, this is something which you can really uh, help us here. You know, what, what has changed before, uh, you know, the, in the course? Like, what does the new course look like? So, yeah, it's been quite a journey. Um, so usually everything would be face-to-face. -face. So the typical year is that um, a student would have access to a seminar, which is a week-long face-to-face residential, to four course days, which are individual standalone days, which are also face-to-face. -face. They'd often travel to another country to attend those. And then we would have some additional bits and pieces on top of that, which is virtual. So assignments is basically like coursework, essentially. They'd send us essays, we'd mm -hmm. mark them, send it back. Um, then suddenly nobody could travel, which was sort of the basis of the whole program. Mm -hmm. And so we had to work quite quickly to think about how we could do something differently. What we ended up with was a program where we were sending out samples globally to all of our students. Oh, wow. So we have students in, um, yeah, last year it was about 36 them. countries. So wow. we had sampling operations in four different countries. We had shipments sending out to everybody to make sure that they could still do their tasting practice, basically. Mm. One of the key parts of the study program is 12 wine blind flights, giving people the chance to taste 12 wines at once, do a practice paper, really get exam practice. So we were sending those out all around the world. Mm -hmm. um, people were logging in on Zoom. We were doing feedback sessions. Uh, and then we did lots of other things as well. So we were doing some webinars. We were doing, um, each student had an opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one call with a master of wine just God. to talk about anything that they might want. So we had, well, I think over 100 masters of wine sign up. They told us what they could help students nice. with and people. And this was not there before. before. So they were None just of like that a, was there Not before. at all. No. So yeah. I think emotionally as well, you had to yeah. keep 
you know, the, the applicants up, right? Like, yeah. Oh, without a doubt. But I think what Sarah's just described yeah. there is that incredible sense of community that yeah. exists oh, within the membership. Say, oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There is a real sense of giving back. And, and that is still part of the course now? Like, you, you do get Zoom lessons and you do... Yeah, you know? so one yeah. thing we've actually started to look at is spending a bit more time... I mean, we've returned to face-to-face -face as much as we can. We currently can't do that for all students because... Yeah. Um, just travel restrictions are really different. So yeah. we still have an online version for some students this year, but for most we're returning back to face-to-face. -face. But now we're supplementing that with more online things okay. and actually doing more of the practical tasting face-to-face -face and then adding a bit more theory online because that seemed to work really well. So we are continuing to sort of learn and evolve the program over these, even now as we return to normal, because I think there were some benefits to it. Um, some of for it was sure. harder to do and some of it, I think, worked really well. So we're trying to hold on to those bits. So a uh, question for students who are, you know, applying or even currently mm -hmm. studying, you know, how would they uh, maintain their grit? Any tips uh, you have for them in keeping the motivation high mm -hmm. and in making sure it's more practical that they apply these techniques and it will help them? Okay, good question. Um, it's difficult, I think. And I think one of the key things that I see is that you get a lot of students who have done exceptionally well in their academic careers for their whole lives. Mm -hmm. And then they come to the MW and they might get some bad marks or things might not be as easy as it's previously been. And I think the key thing that I see in those who are successful and make it through is that they're very humble and they're able to just say, okay, you know what, that's mm. gone badly. And they're curious about why that might have gone badly and they're open to feedback. Got I it. think students that can be open and listen to people and just kind of think, you know what, this is gonna be a journey and it's going to take a long time and they can accept that. I mm -hmm. think that makes a really big difference. Um, and I think the other thing is being realistic about where your weaknesses are. Mm. Um, I think it's a very broad syllabus. Mm -hmm. And if at the beginning you don't say, you know what, there are bits of this that I am a lot weaker at and you mm -hmm. really start working on that and you really start being self-critical, I mm -hmm. think it will be more difficult to get to the end. Um, and I also think, Really using the network is really important. Yeah, you it. have so many masters of wine, so many students around you to help.